We know he's actively obedient throughout his whole life on earth, perfectly fulfilling all the standards of the law. But then it comes down to his passive obedience that we observe this week, where he goes with his great care for his people to the cross. And we think of this starting when he enters Jerusalem for the last time, the last Passover that he would be part of, and he would be the Passover lamb himself. That's what Palm Sunday is about, Jesus entering Jerusalem. That's the message of all four of the Gospels when they relay Palm Sunday. So we'll remember this as we look at this passage. But also we'll remember one of the lessons that comes from this. One of the things we can observe about Palm Sunday, the expectations that we have are far inferior to the actual plan that God has. God's plans are superior to ours. The people that were there that day had their own expectations about their life, about what the Messiah was supposed to do, what the end of it all would be. And those expectations, as grand as they may have been to them, were far inferior compared to what God actually accomplished through the person of Jesus. So remembering that we have this propensity to have expectations that are narrow and very limited will help us appreciate the larger lesson we see of God's providence and his plan to work redemption for his people. So please turn to Mark chapter 11. I will read the first 11 verses. You'll also notice it on your screen. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Mark 11, starting at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, we come to your word and consider a familiar event. We are starting this day a special focus on the week of Christ's passion. The week in which he made his final approach to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. Lord, as we remember Jesus on Palm Sunday, please impress us afresh with your providence, with your redemption. Remind us of our lack of perspective on the here and the now in our need for your wisdom to live and understand events around us, to rest in you for those things we don't know about or can't understand. Lord, we acknowledge that your plan is always better than anything that we could have imagined or expected. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
said it a few times already, and I'll say it again. God's plan is always, always superior to our expectations. The people who witnessed Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they had a mixture of expectations. The people who were present when Jesus rode that donkey into the holy city, they had their own ideas about what Jesus was there to do. They had their own ideas of who Jesus was. The people who lined the street as Jesus rode toward the temple, they had certain plans for their lives and very definite expectations for what the Messiah was supposed to do. You know, one of the great lessons that comes from this familiar passage is the superiority of God's plan over our expectations. Now, I know you already know what Jesus goes on to do, but imagine if you were in that place and try to imagine what they were thinking by what they said and what they did. We can be sure that their expectations were not altogether accurate at all. And this is a common human propensity for us. We have the advantage of hindsight and the scripture's completion to show us what God's plan is. We see how superior it was. But you and I are living every day with expectations that we have, that God has not given us exact revelation concerning. We have to admit that we have a propensity to set our expectations in a way that is self-focused or the way we feel they should be. This story will help us be reminded of our need to rest in God for salvation in Christ and for his sovereign watch care over all of our days. And remember that whatever we might expect, God's plan is far greater still than that. What you'll see as we look at this passage, at least what we should do, is go back in context a little bit. First of all, we want to consider how did the people of God expect Messiah to come? How did the people of God in the Old Testament era envision the work of the Christ? We know what scriptures are there, what they had from the prophets. How did they think of those prophecies? We have the hindsight now. We know what the prophecies meant. We, we have seen their fulfillment. We could say it's way better than they imagined. But it helps us as human beings to look at what other people thought when they heard those prophecies. What was the ancient picture of the Messiah. The second thing we want to do by way of context in understanding this particular event, what were the immediate audience of Jesus on that day thinking? What caused them to recite part of Psalm 118? What caused them to lay down those palm branches and shout as they did? What were they expecting concerning Messiah? I think gathering our human tendency to have our own expectations driven by our own ideas, it's on full display here. And as we walk through some of the biblical background, that will help us come to the passage that's familiar and have a better appreciation for what it's saying to us and how great God's actual plan is compared to what was expected. Then I believe we can apply that to all of life. So many unanswered questions. That would be true any Sunday I preach this. But it's especially true when people are very sensitive, even fearful about things that they can't control. Now there's a full knowledge that we can't control things like we thought we could. That's always the case, but now we really know it. And so we have expectations, maybe some expectations that have gone by the wayside. Some that will be dashed. But as believers united to Christ with eternal life, we can take a step back and know for sure that whatever our plans were, 
They are inferior to what God is doing and will do in your life now but for eternity. This is an ultimate word of encouragement we receive by an eternal work that Christ does beginning with his entrance into Jerusalem as we see it in Scripture. We will see that God's plan is always superior to our expectations. Now, first, let's look at the opening verses and then connect with the long history of biblical prophecy and expectation concerning Jesus. You'll see the definite, very careful, specific way Jesus does what he does, starting at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, all of Jesus' ministry is to draw near to Jerusalem for that final time. He's heading to be the sacrifice. He knows this. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, just on the outside of the city, at the Mount of Olives, this historic place, Jesus sent two of his disciples. He said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied. Jesus, using his divine ability uh, by God's design and by God's provision to know that this colt would be there, but this is tied back to centuries of known prophecy, especially from Zechariah, that Jesus would enter Jerusalem in a special way, that the Messiah, the anointed one, would come this final Passover in a certain way. Jesus is acting out perfectly in a line with what was forecasted by the prophets. Again, in verse 2, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. This shows the, the specialness of Jesus' being the person who first sits on it. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. All of this shows you the disciples' trust in Jesus, who Jesus had been to them, and who he was. And this wouldn't be a friendly thing to go take somebody's colt. But they do as Jesus instructs. In verse 5, some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing in tying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and he let them go. So there's a very intentional activity on the part of Jesus here in telling his disciples to do what they do. And there's an understanding that this will take place just as Christ has said it. So these opening verses of Mark 11 demonstrate Jesus' command over the situation. It's true that he will be passively obedient and that he allows these things to happen to him. But now he's at the cusp of this transference from his active obedience to now his passive obedience as he's brought into Jerusalem like a sacrifice. At the same time, people would have been bringing their sacrifices from all over Israel. The same day, Jesus would be coming into Jerusalem with all those sacrificial animals riding on the colt, a foal of a donkey. People were bringing these sacrifices not knowing that the man who was riding on this colt would be the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. The specific prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling with this activity comes in Zechariah, a prophet who wrote many hundreds of years before Jesus actually came. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, here's a relatively well-known passage. Just one verse. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, written 600 years before Jesus fulfills it. And with precision and perfection, Jesus takes the foal of the donkey as instructed, and he is placed on it, and he starts to go towards Jerusalem. 
very particular was Christ about everything he did in his life and ministry. Now he's coming towards that moment of ultimate redemptive truth as he gets closer to the cross. You know, the Old Testament prophets spoke of redemption repeatedly. Their allusions to the person of Christ, at least in hindsight as we see them, they are replete and they are clear. From the time that God promised to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, we see the Bible as an unfolding of a forecast of Messiah. Now we see that because we've seen the fulfillment. And I'm sure along the way there were many faithful Israelites who understood that ultimate purpose in redemption as well. But we see a consistent error among the Jews in the Old Testament epic that helps bring us into better relation with them, understanding them more, knowing our own propensity. The consistent error that happens throughout the Old Testament as Jesus reveals Messiah is for the people who initially hear the prophecy to think this was about their national or physical salvation. Uh, This had to do with their place of prominence in the world. Uh, The forecast of the Messiah or the Anointed One meant that they would be looked upon by the other nations as superior and that they would be the ones that everybody would have to come to for some kind of salvation. And more often than not, people tended to think of redemption or salvation in immediate terms, in temporal terms, in physical terms. Now, what that tells us is that we are very easily led astray by our temporal existence, by the short life we live on earth. We're consumed by it because we have real needs in front of us, and there are many things around us that concern us, and they cloud us, and we don't think of eternal life the way God intends for us to think. It's from that eternal perspective that we can live our life now. But if our life is so up in our face, we are only thinking through it, and our expectations are then crafted through our temporal existence. And even the people of God in the Old Testament, when promised a Messiah, forgot or ignored the reality that they needed spiritual salvation more than anything else. Uh, Sin had to be undone from what happened in the Garden of Eden. But they're thinking of the nations around them and the press upon them. And they're wanting salvation now. And Messiah took on more of a nationalistic deliverance than an eternal salvation because of their sins. Nevertheless, as we walk through the Old Testament, we'll appreciate how God gave them some deliverances immediately but he was always forecasting to something much greater. Immediate expectations for personal and national deliverance are small expectations. They're small matters compared to the big deal that God was working in his eventual redemption through the Messiah. God's main concern in the Old Testament is to move towards bringing the Messiah. Along the way, though, he calls the people to himself, and he says this about them in Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy, to, Lord, to the Lord your God. You're separate to God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, right after this, he says, God didn't pick you because you were greater. God picked you because it was God's design to manifest or signpost his great grace in calling a people to himself. Now, he called the people to himself as a way to bring forth the Messiah who would be a blessing to the nations. But in the immediate, the people often took this about themselves. They were self-focused. And this means God's got us in a special place. And people can't mess with us as a nation or as a people, or God will get them. And they didn't look further to what they also needed from God. This is commonly a challenge for us 
to not be self-focused or bound by our, our temporal circumstances in seeing what God's actually doing. Yes, God is concerned with our physical well-being as he was concerned with the Israelites' physical well-being. Yes, he's concerned for the various miseries that we endure in this life, living in a fallen world, with, in a fallen condition. He is concerned with oppression his people may feel because they are aligning with him. But much more significantly, even in the case of Israel, we see it over and over again, he's concerned with their spiritual condition, their spiritual salvation that he was promising through the Messiah to whom they had to look by faith. They had to look ahead to the promise of Messiah for salvation from their sins. That's more important than their personal deliverance. Unfortunately, on the whole, as we look at the Old Testament Jewish ancients, they basically seem to forget the spiritual lessons God was teaching through physical deliverances. Consider just a few of the deliverances and how great they are, and notice how there are two aspects to them. One is a physical deliverance, but it's meant to show the greater deliverance that God would bring. What's probably the most famous one? Probably the Exodus in chapter 12 of Exodus. This is, of course, when, in miraculous fashion, God raises up Moses, and through Moses, he's able to bring over two million Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. And he does it in a way that no person could take credit. If anyone took any credit, it would be Moses, just because God used Moses. But God used a man who could not even speak straight enough, had his brother do most of his speaking, messed up in front of them a lot. And yes, he was a type of Christ, but inferior to the real Christ. So there's always, no matter how great the action of deliverance is, this room to realize there's a greater deliverer. But for centuries after Exodus chapter 12, and you can understand this, the Old Testament saints look back to the Exodus as a way of saying that we are special to God. And they took it as God will always give us this immediate deliverance. Under the law, when Moses received it at Sinai after this exodus, in Leviticus chapter 16, we learn about the day of atonement that God assigns. This is when the high priest would lay his hands on one goat and sacrifice him and lay his hands on another goat in order to release the goat. This was a ritual that they went through, and many Israelites just saw it as a unique ritual for Israelites to again show how they are different from the world. They're looking very closely and temporally. But the real picture is to picture the Messiah who was to come, that God laid his hands of judgment on the goat who represented Christ and sacrificed him. The other goat was set free due to the sacrifice of the first goat. Even this immediate picture that was unique to Israel was meant to forecast the greater plan of God, the coming Messiah. We could go through all of the scripture and see this over and over, this, this dual aspect to God's deliverances. In the time of the judges, he raises up Gideon to free them from their oppressors, the Midianites. Now remember, the Israelites fell into sin. God raises up a judge, and then he gives them deliverance to the judge. And this happens cycle after cycle. It's Gideon first, it's Samson, it's Ehud, it's Othniel. The judges all tell the same story of the cycle of sin and this need for redemption, God gives them redemption physically from their enemies, but it always, always is heading towards the picture of them crying for a king, which on the initial level is again a temporary fix. But on the eternal level, God would raise up the ultimate king who would come and do the work that could not have been done by anyone else. Even the judges leading to a king is a picture of ultimate deliverance that would come from the anointed Messiah. The times of the kings, mostly dark because the kings were so weak. But there was one or two kings 
even as many as four, depending on how you categorize good kings. But there was David, a man after God's own heart. David the king, who was the picture of the one who loved the people and would sacrifice himself for the people, would fight for the people, would defend the people. This was the prototype of the ultimate Messiah king, a Davidic king in that sense. He delivered the Israelites many times out of the hands of oppressors. So you can understand when we go forward to the day of Palm Sunday, when they're saying that this is the son of David, they're thinking in those temporal terms again. Will you deliver us from the Romans the same way you delivered us from the Philistines? Then the time of the prophets came. In the time of the kings and the prophets, where God again showed physical deliverance. Remember Hezekiah, Assyria's coming, and through the prophet's word and the work of the Holy Spirit, a massive army of Sennacherib is wiped out. This deliverance, though, as awesome as it was, was never meant to be the ultimate picture here. It's that God will raise a king and give this king the ability to give you ultimate deliverance. Don't get stuck on the here and the now about this. You know what's interesting is one of the the modern favorites among those who are Jewish today is not Exodus chapter 12. It's actually the book of Esther. Now, not for the reason I would argue the book of Esther is given and why it's in the scriptures. Their take on it is that Esther is the story of preserving Israel against all their enemies. And it's taken as a, as a bit of a model for anyone who messes with Israel will find out what will happen to them. You saw what happened with Esther. In fact, most of the modern Jewish ceremonies are related to the book of Esther, not the book of Exodus. It's about a nationalism. It's about God will always protect Israel no matter what they do. Look what happened with Esther. And that misses the greater point of Esther. And the greater point of Esther is despite Esther's disobedience at some level, why were they even there and not back in Israel when they were called back to Israel, but almost losing all of Israel because of what happened there, but yet God gave her power to stand when she should have, put her in the right place at the right time, so that the messianic line would not be lost. To preserve Messiah. That's the real contribution, the greater contribution of the book of Esther. You could take every aspect of the Old Testament and and show how this unfolds. But I take you back to the verse fulfilled by Jesus going into into Jerusalem. Back to Zechariah 9. Let's not just look at verse 9, but let's look at verses 10 and 11 too to see the fullness of the picture of Messiah that Jesus was rightly fulfilling and the people just had misguided expectations concerning. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. Now hold up. There's no human king that could have entered that could be called just, which is another word for righteous, justified before God. He could stand because he's righteous. He is just and having salvation. He's a righteous one and can save, lowly and riding on a donkey, yet he does so in some humble way. This isn't a war horse of victory. It's a donkey. That should be an indication this is a different king than they were expecting. A colt, a foal of a donkey. But now go to verse 10 and 11 and you'll see the fullness of this prophecy. God says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. I'm going to stop wars. I'm going to stop this kind of human idea of settling things because this Messiah king will be the king of peace unlike any other king you've ever known of. And no one would have known of such a king in these days. No king like this had ever existed. Further, in verse 10 of Zechariah 9, the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. What kind of king is this who can actually bring this peace? His dominion, verse 10 once again, shall be from sea to sea. 
This is not just someone who's going to relieve the Israelites from Rome. This is a, a far greater Messiah king. From river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This reference to blood, this reference to lowliness, this reference to one who is just and can bring salvation is the true picture of what the Messiah did. And Jesus knows this as he enters Jerusalem. But you see, the expectations of the ancient Jews was far inferior to what the actual Christ would come and do. The prophecies of the Old Testament gave the picture of Messiah King. They were concentrating, no doubt, on a revival of David, that kind of a king, the king of the worldly nations, not the king of the whole world for eternity. They thought of national ascendance under a king in the Old Testament era. They thought of a physical deliverance through a king, as they had seen before. But Messiah means anointed one. And the Messiah was anointed to be more than just the king. The Messiah was anointed to fulfill all of those forecasts. And they were embodied not just in the kingship of the Messiah and the messianic work. The anointing also had to do with his being the servant of God, the mouthpiece of God, the ultimate prophet of God. The Messiah was anointed for something else as well, to be the sacrifice, to be the final priest. So the Messiah, the anointed one pictured in the Old Testament, is the king, but he does so by God's word and appointment and by his sacrifice of self to gain us this ultimate deliverance eternally that we all long for. Our catechism does a great job capturing these features of Jesus' work. You could say it this way or word it this way. How does Christ, which means in Greek the anointed one, how does the anointed one execute the office of a prophet? He executes this office of the prophet in revealing to us by his word and by the Spirit, the will of God for salvation. We could trust the words that come from Jesus about salvation. How does the anointed one, the Messiah, execute the office then of a priest? Christ, the anointed one, executes the office of a priest in his offering up of himself once as a sacrifice to satisfy the divine justice and to reconcile us, make us right with God and making continual intercession for us. This is so much greater than any temporal deliverance. So much greater. How does the anointed one, the Christ, execute now the office of a king? They're expecting a king. Well, this is what the real king does. This is who Jesus really is. Christ executes the office of a king. How? In subduing us. Not taking over nations. He could take over nations through their hearts. And he does that by subduing us, it says. It's well said. By subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us. You know, kings can subdue people outwardly, but they can't do it inwardly unless they're Jesus. He subdues us and defends us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So whatever temporally happens to you on the surface, this is not an ultimate defeat. God defends us. Jesus defends us. The anointed Christ defends us by conquering all his and our enemies. And the ultimate enemy is what? The ultimate enemy is death. And what we look forward to for next Sunday is the defeat of death by our king, assuring us of that final defeat for us as well in him. Way better than any expectations the ancient Jews had. 
what about the expectations of those on Palm Sunday, that original Palm Sunday in Jesus' day? Look back at Mark 11. Mark 11, 7 down to verse 10. You see how they respond, and this will give us a bit of an idea of what they're thinking. This will give us a bit of an idea of what their expectations are. Fully realizing there's a mixture in that crowd. Uh, Not everyone's thinking exactly the same way, but from what we see, what can we gather? Verse 7 of Mark 11. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. These were activities that demonstrated a belief that Jesus was royalty in that he was victorious. The leaves were often used when a conquering general would come back from battle, lay down, and he would come in on a war horse. So you could see this is a bit of a twisted uh, copy of that as they lay down their palm branches. This idea that there's victory wrapped up somehow in this kingly person of Christ. That's what they expect. You can say that for sure. There was an expectation he came to gain some victory. Verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting. If there's any doubt about what I just said, look at what they say. Hosanna, which means save now. Not like we're looking forward to the salvation you will eventually give us. That's not what they're saying. Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. I think it can go almost without saying what their expectation was. That he was coming to overthrow Rome. He was coming to change the Jews' fortunes. These were not the Pharisees shouting this, who were in tight with Rome. The Pharisees were great with the way things were, really. They were enriched by it. They had their temple. They had their city. They had a certain amount of autonomy. This represents the zealous Jews who really wanted to see deliverance, and they wanted personal, physical deliverance. That's what they're misguided about. That's what we can easily fall into, the thinking that the blessing of God has to come in a physical fashion. No, the great blessing of God is greater than that. It has to do with the whole of our existence in eternity, not just now. They spread their cloaks on the road, these leafy branches laid out, and they're basically referring to Psalm 118, a great psalm of David and David's victory. Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We will bless you from the house of the Lord. This is a psalm of ascent. This is the king's ascension. And they're talking now about Jesus, who will fulfill this role in their minds. When Jesus mounted the donkey and began his entry into Jerusalem, the symbolism was clear to those who were nationalistic, anti-Roman, anti-oppression Jews, who were in the city looking for their deliverance, their temporal deliverance. Many had waited their whole bitter lives to see the overthrow of the Roman leadership, a people they hated. To them, Rome was like Egypt, but probably worse. Here came the Moses of the hour, Jesus. He would now deliver them. He must deliver them from the hand of their oppressors. That's what they mean when they say save now. Jewish expectations were centered on the Messiah becoming, being some kind of militaristic, political, kingly leader who would crush the opposition and liberate the people from their oppressors. Finally, we're going to see it. David restored. All the while, the deeper, permanent, lasting reality that Jesus was in fact there to liberate them from their sins, a far greater enemy than the Romans could ever be. It seemed to be lost in the euphoria of the moment on the first Palm Sunday. You know, scholars debate about calling this Jesus' triumphal entry. And if we look at it through the lens of redemption, we know it was triumphal in that 
Jesus was presenting himself as a sacrifice to the Father, and the Father is accepting it. That's our triumph because of Christ on our behalf. Whatever the case, whatever you want to call this, it's clear that human expectations, by definition, are seriously flawed without God's revelation. Verse 9b of the second part of verse 9 of Mark 11. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They didn't even realize that what they were saying is actually true. Save now. Save now. Because Christ can save them. Christ did the work to save them. They meant salvation from Rome. They meant relieve us from our miserable status in the world. But God's plan is way greater than that. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna, in the highest. You know, it's easy in hindsight, as we're doing, no question, admittedly, to look back and be critical of what the Jews of old and what the Jews there in Jesus' day were missing. Clearly, they were too consumed with their immediate circumstances when they constantly cried out to God asking for deliverance. But I could challenge all of us, myself included right now, You have to admit, whatever your personal immediate circumstance is, even when you look at God's word, you can tend to skew God's word on the basis of whatever's happening to you. Uh, Many are fearful and anxious because of the unknown nature of this virus that's sweeping through the, the world, really. And sometimes out of that place of fear and anxiety, we can misinterpret what God says so clearly in his word, or we can misinterpret what he's actually promising. We get stuck in loving this life so much that we can't shake out of it when we, something threatens it. Now, we expect that from unbelievers. If all they, think, all they think is that this is it, this physical life, you can understand why they are scared to protect it. But for the believer, we have the promise of eternal life. We have promise of life everlasting. This is just a small part of it, no matter how many years we live. So we have to be careful not to be entrapped by our limited perspective because that will make us fearful with any threat that comes to these short days we live. I'm not suggesting that there's not room for concern and there's not room for care. Certainly, there are many promises and many commands of God that would demand for us to be careful about such things because life is precious, especially preserving the life of others. But we do have to be careful not to become enslaved and have such temporal outlooks on things, that we forget the great plan of God that's still at work, even though we don't know the full ends of all the details for our lives, we know it's a great plan. We can expect that God will fulfill those promises to all who are in Christ. Whenever our mortal lives are threatened, it serves as a wake-up call. And now here we are at Palm Sunday, looking back at one of the events, one of the events that it's most vivid, where human expectations we're far inferior to what God's actual plan is. Well, finally, when we consider verse 11, it's kind of an interesting text. I don't know if you noticed what happened. After this big buildup, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and we see the plan of Messiah start to crystallize more, especially, again, hindsight. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. This is very symbolic um, because it's described in other places in the Old Testament where the Messiah would enter God's house. Um, And so he's entering to fulfill prophecy. Now, that night would not, that immediate moment wouldn't be the time of his arrest. It would come shortly thereafter. Um, He wouldn't go right from the cross to the temple. It says in second part of verse 11, And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Even in that moment, he was not slave to the people's expectations. His plan was in action. This was all part of the ultimate plan to unfold his being arrested and tried, convicted, 
ultimately executed, but then raised again, and then ascended. It's all in the control of God, even as Jesus is passive in his obedience here. God's plan for the Messiah was so much better than any human expectation, so much more far-reaching. God's plans are better than ours. It says in the Proverbs, the heart of man plans his way. It's true. But the Lord establishes his steps. We plan, but God moves us where he wills. Man is finite, while God is infinite. Man is limited, while God is limited by nothing. Man's expectations are inferior to God's plan. God's plan is supreme. And nowhere do we see this more vividly than in the work of the Messiah as it unfolds. While the vast majority of the Jews in Israel were of a similar mind when they expected a political or national Messiah immediate deliverance, there were those who understood more clearly the spiritual nature of Messiah's work, no doubt. There were some who comprehended the work of Messiah to be superior to the work of the prophets of old, the judges of old, the priests of old, the kings of old. There are many there who did understand that he was better than all of that, but most were still confused. You know, if you think about it, so what if Jesus delivered them immediately, if he just was a better version of those others? I mean, how many physical deliverances did they need? Yes, God could have continued to raise up leaders like Abraham. He could have raised up another Isaac, another Jacob, another Joseph, another Moses even. He could have raised up another Samuel and delivered them from the Romans. He could have raised up another host of judges to do the same. He could have raised up another David, another Solomon, another Hezekiah, and others. Other temporal deliverances. He could have raised them up. How many? But here's the glorious plan of God, the superior plan of God, which reigns supreme over any of our human expectations. Jesus would go on now to provide that spiritual, eternal redemption that none of those other temporal judges, kings, prophets, none of them could do. So instead of another temporary deliverance, he gave something far greater. He delivers his people spiritually for eternally and gives them life. Yes, the saving that Noah did with his family was redemptive and impressive, but it was temporary. The saving of all Israel from famine under the ministry of Joseph, as you remember, was redemptive and impressive, but it was only picturing the ultimate in these. God's raising up of Moses, we've already said, was redemptive and amazingly impressive. I mean amazingly impressive. But that still pales in comparison to the upcoming deliverance. God sending his spirit to strike all those who are not covered by the blood in the Passover was vividly redemptive and impressive. And he could have done one of these temporary deliverances again, I suppose. God's leading Israel through the Red Sea and over to Sinai was miraculously redemptive and impressive. God's deliverance of the nations into Joshua's hands was redemptive and impressive. I suppose God could have done that again. God's expansion of Israel under David and Solomon, redemptive and impressive. The world never seen a rise like that. And they're of the stuff of legend in the ancient world. Maybe God could have just done that again, right? God's restoration of Israel after their wickedness brings them back under Ezra and Nehemiah. Another show of redemption that's super impressive. All these redemptive acts of God are awesome. They're impressive. They're miraculous. They're inspiring. All these acts of God showed God's covenantal faithfulness to a people who didn't deserve it. All these acts would surely cause God to take notice 
And the nations would have to say, that's the great God of Israel. Maybe he could have just done that again. But all of these acts, they were temporary. We don't need another temporary act like this. We need a permanent redemption. Not another Red Sea salvation. Not another famine salvation. Not another war salvation. Not another salvation from our our enemies around us. We need an ultimate enemy salvation, and that's the enemy of death. That's who we need redemption from. That's who we need salvation from. That's a far greater and more formidable enemy than all the nations of earth, including the mighty Roman Empire in Jesus' day. We need a salvation from our sins. We need a salvation that towers over every other kind of salvation we might experience. When Jesus got on that donkey in fulfillment of the ancient prophecies, people were still slaves to their feeble expectations. But not Jesus. He knew from what cup he would drink. He knew to what pain he rode on to. He knew to what end he was appointed. The Lord Jesus drove along on that donkey toward that temple, and he was clear on his mission. He would die for the salvation of his people. He would not lose one that the Father had given to him. He would, in fact, be the ultimate deliverer, the eternal deliverer, the great high priest, the final sacrifice. Other deliverers no longer needed. The ultimate had come the last to ever be needed. One greater than all the deliverers combined because he did it for the people that God had given to him. And what he did was give them an eternal deliverance. He makes atonement for their sins and saves their souls. As people threw their palm branches down, some probably mocking, some seriously hopeful for something, but all of them had human expectations. The king rode on, understanding the plan. This story most vividly depicts for us the supremacy of God's plan over all human expectations. Why, dear brothers and sisters, are we so consumed with the temporary when God is clearly concerned about the eternal? If he has managed to make such a great move on our behalf in Christ, this finished work, can we not trust him for all the smallest details of our life Yes, we can. And that's one of the great messages that comes from this story that we read, this account that we read from 2,000 years ago when Jesus got on the donkey and rode to the temple to lay himself down for us. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess that our perspective is so limited. Please help us to believe in your word and trust in you. Lord, to the degree that we are disappointed with what we interpret about life, please point us again to Christ and his finished work. Lord, to the degree that we are fearful about the future, please give us rest in your record of redemption. Lord, to the degree that we are confused about what to do, please give us clarity by your word. Lord, help us to adjust our expectations based on the pursuit of your glory and the surety that we can have in our Savior. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's together respond by standing. Let's turn together to 311. We'll sing all verses of Hail to the Lord's Anointed. I had to look and see what we're singing.
Okay. Okay, so I'll do the benediction by, uh, I'll start with that announcement. On the first Sunday of every month, as you are aware, we take a special offering. It's the Deacon's Fund offering. And in all the places that were already mentioned that you can go and pay online, you'll be able to notice how you could designate it to the Deacon's Fund if you choose to give to that. You can imagine this will be a fund that we'll no doubt have to draw upon in the weeks and even months to come. Receive now the benediction. May the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.